Life is too short to live it feeling stuck in a rut. Does your outlook on future possibilities have you asking, is this all there is? Maybe you feel that no matter what you do, your career does not seem to make any significant progress or impact. Maybe your family feels more distant from you than ever. The, the truth is, there is so much more for your life, and you are not alone. Beyond the Rut podcast brings you stories of inspiration and practical tips to help you get unstuck in the areas of faith, family, fitness, finances, and future possibility. From those who have journeyed those paths before you. Head over to beyondtherut.com where you'll find episodes to the show, links to where we are syndicated like on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and download our free resource titled Measure It to Make It, where you can create the roadmap for the life you've always dreamed of living beyond the rut. And, you know, you're going to have to put a spoiler alert at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> if there's ever a time where we needed to pull together as believers of Christ and, and unite and try to strengthen and make the world a better place, it's now. Mm-hmm. And that, that sounds like he's yeah. preaching our message. <laughs> there's one body, one church, one spirit, one hope. The realities of the faith, the realities that unify us are already there. Christ praying for unity. What should we all be praying for? Mm. I mean, it's the one prayer request of Jesus. Think about it in the Bible that we actually have a say in whether or not it comes to fruition or not. I think in what God has done in you guys in, uh, in this podcast and the, the multitude of folks that you're reaching, the diversity, whatever God intended when, he's, when you started this, he's able to bring it to completion. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Joshua Knoll, here with the other co-host, the one and only TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Good to be here, as always. Yeah, and today we're here with another very special guest, uh, Christian Taylor of um, The Holy Post and the director of The Girl Who Wore Freedoms, what we're here to talk about today. Uh, we're really excited to have you on. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's awesome to be here. Super nice to meet you guys face to face. You too. Oh, yeah. I've uh, I've been listening to the show she's on for a long time, so I've naturally been following the kind of production of her movie for a while, and uh, me and TJ got to listen to it early, so we're Really excited to talk about it. But uh, Watch before it. we do, we always like to review some of our audience's engagement. Uh, this week for our Monday and Monday, we asked on our social media accounts, um, what is something that's been in your car too long? And Abby said an empty can of beef broth that rolled into the middle seat. And that was just <laughs> a pretty unique answer. So <laughs> I you know, thought people people needed to know that. And uh <laughs> Good luck, Abby. She said it fell out of the recycling. Right. I, I don't know. They have recycling in their car, I guess. Yeah. Not unrelatable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with that, we're going to move into today's silly question, uh, which ironically, I got sort of got this from Phil with, you know, the um, now it's time for a silly song. <laughs> I grew up yes. with that. So uh, you're now talking about a silly question. Phil Vischer, just for everybody's right. <laughs> information. Phil is uh he is the head of the Holy Post podcast. He's also the creator of Veggie Tales and What's in the Bible. And uh, he is one of my long-term friends. So Yeah, yeah. Good guy, from, from what I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so if you had to have a pie thrown in your face, which kind of pie would you most prefer? Uh, TJ, would you like to go first? Uh, I can go first. I, th- I, I got lucky. I looked at this outline earlier because this is one of those questions that would have been like, oh, no. I would have had to think about it. Yeah. But <laughs> I decided it's lemon meringue pie because hmm. it's it's soft. There's not a lot there. 
it's still delicious. So I can still, you know, take care of yeah. the business afterwards, but it's nice, inoffensive taste. Not going to damage me too much unless someone really strong throws it. So, yeah. You know what? That is a super strong <laughs> choice that I did not even consider. But now that you're saying that, I may have to rethink my choices. Yeah, I um, I, I took a similar route. I, I think I thought of a see. I thought of lemon meringue, but I was afraid that maybe the citrus would get in my eye. I don't know how much lemon is actually in that. But uh, and then I thought of um banana cream, but I thought it might be too sticky. Uh, so I, I don't know. If coconut cream's any less sticky, but I know it smells better, so I'm going to go with coconut cream pie. That one actually would be a good one too. So, in uh, fact, I think both of your choices <laughs> might be better than mine because I was yeah, purely thinking roll. about like what my favorite pies were. I wasn't right. thinking about the impact on my face. Right? <laughs> yeah, that that was my problem because I would have yeah. said blueberry, but that's hot. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I I was struggling over would it be cherry or pumpkin because pumpkin is my favorite in the you know fall winter, but cherry is my favorite other time. But both of those would really hurt. Oh, so yeah. now that I have heard your answers, I think I'm going to go with lemon meringue. Oh, excellent. Mm. All right, man, a, have a, a cold pumpkin pie would just be go to the hospital. Awful. You basically uh, feel the the plate, you know, you really wouldn't feel much of the pie. You'd feel the plate. I mean, I thought of it, too, because I was like, yeah, cold pies, not hot pies, pumpkin. And then I was like, ooh. Or pecan. Can you imagine getting hit in the face by a pecan pie? (laughs) That might be the worst. (laughs) So next silly question will be, what is the pie that you would least prefer? Right. Anyway. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So on to the real podcast. Uh, you are the director of The Girl Who Wore Freedom, which you were kind enough to let mm-hmm. us see early. Uh, we both enjoyed it a lot. Really, really good uh, World War II D-Day uh, documentary. Uh, what can you tell our listeners about your inspiration for the documentary and the name of the film? Yeah, so The Girl Who Wore Freedom is the story of D-Day, but from the perspective of the French. And it's really more than that because it is the love affair between the French people of Normandy and the GIs that liberated them uh, that I discovered when I was there in 2015. So I went to Normandy for the very first time because my oldest son, Hunter, was with the 101st Airborne Division, and he was sent to Normandy, France, uh, to be part of an honor guard of the 101st Airborne Division. And when he called me and said, Mom, the Army is sending me to France, I said, we're going to France? And he's like, Mom, <laughs> you are not going to France. And I was like, oh, really? I'm not? Hmm. So, of course, I went to France and uh, I'd never been to the country before, didn't speak the language, had never driven in a foreign country. So it was quite the adventure. Um, I had no idea how I was going to find Hunter, but we did end up finding one another. Um, And in the first 15 minutes that we were together, a beautiful French woman walked up to my son and asked to take a picture And after the picture was over, she told me the jacket that she was wearing had been given to her mother in 1944 by an American GI. And that began my conversation with the Boucherie family. Um, Danny was five on D-Day and Jean-Marie was seven. Um, And I was just stunned to be in the presence of people, um, you know, firsthand eyewitnesses to, um, you know, the Battle of Normandy and from then, uh, the the rest sort of is history. We became friends, and 
eventually I decided in 2017 to make a film about uh, their lives and those other ones that people they introduced me to. And our film was finished uh, June D-Day 2020. And it's now been in its film festival run for the last nine months. And um, yeah, so that's where we are today. A very successful yeah. film yeah, festival I, um, run, I've noticed. Yeah, but, yeah. We've had like 20 awards and it's we've gotten distribution already. And so that's pretty amazing for a first time filmmaker. And yeah. um, I tell everybody it's it's a complete and utter miracle. I'm a first time filmmaker um, and I I genuinely mean that when I say it. Um, usually it takes five to 10 years to do a documentary of this scope. And it really took me two and a half. And I give God all the credit for that. I felt like he yeah, called me enough. to do this film. And I just said yes. And I was obedient every step of the way, even though I really couldn't see where I was going. And I love this story because um, I was a year earlier trying to find out um, what it really meant to hear the voice of the Lord. And I was on this journey of trying to understand and discern the difference between the Lord's voice and any other voice in my head. And I ran across the scripture in Jeremiah 29, where the Lord, well, the book says, Jeremiah heard the Lord say, Jeremiah, your cousin's going to come and ask you to buy a field, and I want you to do what he says. And Jeremiah's cousin came and asked him to buy a field. And you know, Jeremiah did. And then there's a line in there that jumped out to me that said, and when this came to pass, Jeremiah knew it was the voice of the Lord. And that was in stark contrast to what it began with, which was Jeremiah heard the voice of the Lord. And I thought that's so fascinating. He heard the voice of the Lord. He moved forward believing that it was true, but it wasn't until after the thing happened that he knew with certainty it had been the Lord. And so when I felt like I heard the Lord tell me to do this thing, I thought, okay, I think I hear you saying this. I am going to move forward in faith that this is what you're calling me to do, but I'm going to hold it loosely in my hand knowing that you could call me to this, do this thing, but that thing in itself might not be the end result. You might have something more along the way to teach me. Um, but if I am standing on Utah Beach on the 75th anniversary of D-Day with a produced film that I am showing in Normandy, then I will have known it was the voice of the Lord. That was basically my yeah. fleece that I laid out in a sense. and. Um, you know, that was it was a huge um, lesson of learning how to listen to the Lord and walk with him on a daily basis when he called you to do something big and you couldn't see the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Um, OK, this is just a, an, a quick aside question, I guess. Um, the the narrator of the film, is that your voice as well? It is me. He yes. didn't watch okay. the credits. I thought Look so, but I wasn't completely sure. Well, I don't watch credits. I can't read. <laughs> there were cool credits. It was like <laughs> the, the tree um, color, okay. and uh, it was cool. I enjoyed them. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad well, you watched the I credits. We, out. yeah, the credits are amazing. We had a guy named Daniel Petrino in Nashville um, design our credits. It's not just a black scroll, and they're pretty amazing. We're super proud of those. 
Um, they are the best credits in any movie other than Marvel that I've ever seen. So, um, yeah, but I did narrate it. Interestingly enough, I didn't start to do that. Um, when we first started this film, I really wanted this to be more of a Ken Burns type documentary. He was sort of my documentary filmmaking hero. And so I had asked Peter Coyote, um, his usual narrator, to nar- narrate our film. And so that was my plan. But uh, my plan went all awry when all hell broke loose um, in February of 2019. And I just did not have enough time uh, to pull that all together. And so I had to do it. It was yeah. quick and easy and didn't cost me anything. You did yeah. a good job. I really, yeah, I, was saying, I really <laughs> enjoyed you. the narrating. Um, I actually thought it was really cool to have because so often the narrator is just what sounds like an older male and to have a you know a strong female voice, I was like, wow, that that actually it brought a lot of character. I enjoyed that. I'm um, glad. Thank you. Yeah. So two of my favorite stories from the film uh, were, well, the one was about the guy who actually got shot by American soldiers in the back, and um, went on to commemorate the Americans for what they did in Norway anyway. And then the other one I really enjoyed was the beautiful the the memorial scene at the end on the beach. Mm-hmm. I really like the kind of the story behind that. You know, I don't want to spoil anything for people, but uh, the beautiful scene at the end there. Um, did you have a favorite story of the ones that you did cover in the film? Like, do you have a favorite one? Well, though, the one that you're talking about and, you know, you're going to have to put a spoiler alert at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> uh, but the one that you're talking about is is Michelle de Valivier. and Michelle de Valivier lived um, at Brecourt Manor. And anybody that has watched Band of Brothers episode, I think, two um, will remember that Dick Winters was the one responsible for liberating Brecourt Manor. And Michelle de Valivier was the owner at that time and lived there. And his story uh, is just really unknown. In fact, Tom Hanks asked to tell his story and the family would not let them because they did not want it to um, be misconstrued construed in any way or um, they just they didn't want them to tell it. Uh, I learned about it on my first trip to Normandy. And when I learned about it, I thought, oh, my gosh, that absolutely typifies um, the French people that I know, which is, you know, there was some grievous thing that happened here. And yet it did not, you know, it did not turn out the way that you would expect. Mm -hmm. And I thought that when, when I was in Normandy, the thing that I saw was there was such incredible grief. 20,000 lives were lost in the Battle of Normandy, French lives that we never talk about and don't hear a lot about. So there was tremendous grief in 1944, not to mention everyone that had died before. That 20,000 lives was, you know, lost in the hundred days in the Battle of Normandy. And Yet, now, when I was there in 2015, the amount of joy and love and gratitude, not only for the veterans, but also for the modern day units that come over to celebrate, uh, was just mind boggling. And so I thought um, I wanted to answer that question. How had this gratitude lasted all of these years? And how did it how did they turn from this grief stricken nation to become a nation full of gratitude? And that was the question I set out to answer in the beginning. So that Michelle de Valivier piece is incredibly important to me. Uh, And then 
we have some other survivors there. Henri Jean Renault, whose father was the mayor of St. Mary Glees, many people know in the longest day. John Steele, one of the 82nd Airborne paratroopers, was stuck on the church steeple. And um, so Henri Jean Renault's father was the mayor there. And he just tells these passionate stories about uh, his own family life and what his family did in this liberation time. And then Maurice LaCour. Maurice LaCour tells a hilarious story about the morning of D-Day in St. Mary Glees, where an American GI gave him a puff of his camel cigarette mm, and yeah. it cured him from smoking for the rest of his life. So uh, Maurice LaCour, we didn't expect him to be as funny as he is, but whenever I've watched the film with an audience, he always gets the most laughs. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, there were just some very heartwarming stories. I think the one that nobody knows about because we didn't get into this but uh, Danny, the girl who wore freedom, Danny's husband, Jean-Marie Boucherie, was seven in Carenton at the time. And he remembers meeting his first paratrooper. And when the paratrooper saw him, he motioned to Jean-Marie to come towards him, which Jean-Marie did, and put out his hand. And he was given a piece of gum and he just stuffed it all in his mouth. And he ran home <laughs> and told his mother that he was going to become uh, a paratrooper and he wanted to go to America. Right. What's fascinating about that is that he actually did become a paratrooper. He became a paratrooper in the French army and he fought in the Algerian war where he actually saved his commanding officer's life. And subsequently, his son became a paratrooper as well. So where one little instant, one moment with a GI charted the course for this man's life and his son's life for the, you know, the next, I don't know, 70 years. It's just really right. interesting. And man, the Algerian yeah, war was I, uh, not a place you wanted to be. So that's no. definitely not. Yeah. There was a couple of real funny moments in the movie. I, um, the, the kid with the eggs. Oh yeah. That's, that, that's, that's Jean-Marie made me laugh the most. That's Jean-Marie yeah. that, uh, yeah. <laughs> Jean-Marie was, yeah. The story about the eggs and the GIs. Interestingly enough, in that scene, the GI is my son, Jacob. So mm. my son Hunter wow. was the older one, and that GI is my son Jacob. Wow! I, uh, that's nobody. Awesome. That's a very like a very small <laughs> fact. Most people do not know. That's. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's super funny because I know even in like the forties, he wasn't like upset to get rid of those shoes. He's like, oh, they'll give me new shoes if I ask for new shoes. You can take these. I'll, I'll take these eggs. Yeah, you know. <laughs> What's so crazy yeah. is that when you go to Normandy, they still have so many things there that that were just left. You know, everything was just left there. And there were just so many supplies that uh, there was just an abundance of everything once the Americans got there. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned, you know, how uh, Jean-Henri. Uh, Jean-Marie. Jean-Marie. Or right. Henri jean Renault. Henri jean What's How long did it take you to get the names down? Either way. Uh, yeah, it was really tough. I mean, it was easy for me because I met them in person, right. but my editor had never been to France and he never met them in person. So he had to print off all of their pictures with their names to try to memorize everybody. It's yeah, not I'm easy. Not, I'm not even trying. I, I should have watched it more than <laughs> yeah. once. I probably could have remembered, but, uh, you know. Well, which one are you stories, thinking about? Either way, the untold stories is, is what I'm trying to focus on. Uh, did you have a particular – was there one that didn't make it into the film that you found particularly heartwarming or something like that? 
Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you asked. Um, there are actually two. The first one, um, we we were friends and are friends with a wonderful GI named Willie Willie Kellerman. He was with the 79th Infantry Division. He landed on Utah Beach, and Willie uh, was going at one point to get a radio for his commanding officer, I believe, and he was captured by the Germans, and he was then um, marched off. and I think they were going to a prisoner of war camp, and he escaped. So they would march them, I think, by, I don't know if it was night or day, I don't remember. But wherever they were, at some point, they had to sit them down. And while they were sitting down, Willie and his friend rolled under the bushes and got away. And so they were going to try to get to Switzerland so they could be free. And they found two bicycles. And so they borrowed, and I'm using air quotes, they borrowed (laughs) these French bicycles and uh, were riding to Switzerland, they hoped. And they got a flat tire. So they went into a bicycle shop. And when they went in there, they were captured by French resistance workers. Now, the resistance workers weren't sure if they were French people posing as Americans or what they were. So they put them through this interrogation process and they determined they really were American. And so they hid them in the forest of Balland for weeks and weeks until that area of France was liberated. So when I was there filming in 2018, Willie had come back and they were going to take um, the French people, Flo Plana to be exact, was going to take Willie back to this forest where he had lived for all these weeks. So we were there watching him discover this place where he had once you know, been, which was at that time surrounded by Germans. And at one point, he just told everybody to stop talking. And it was perfectly silent. And he said, listen to that. You hear that? That's what I remember. When you stop talking and I hear the silence and the birds, that's what I remember. Because they couldn't talk in this forest. They were all there. Nobody could say a word because the Germans were close by. So that actually is a deleted scene that is on our YouTube page that people can go and watch. And then the other one, there was a story, um, Jean-Marie Caillat is a Frenchman. He runs a shop called L'Atelier in Carenton. And in this shop, he has set up a radio signalman's nest. And I asked him how he came about this. And he said a friend of his uh, was doing a roofing job on the house only a few years ago, and they discovered a completely intact radio signalman's nest with the radios, with you just everything in place. And there were candy wrappers and Ritz cracker cartons and all of this all over the floor. And um, so he took it out and set it up in his attic. And as they were leaving, his son spied some papers underneath a floorboard. And when they pulled the papers out, they were all letters to a Sergeant Robert Miller from his family in Illinois. And when he showed these letters to me, he told me that he'd been trying to find the family, but never would, was able to. And I realized I looked at the letters and the return address was not far from my house. And I was like, I am going to find that family for you. So I came home and I did find the family and we bought, brought Sergeant Robert Miller's daughter over to France and she brought letters that her father had written home. 
And so we were able to reunite uh, Sergeant Robert Miller's family with these letters. And we kind of filmed all of that. So that was a very cool story that we didn't get to include, unfortunately, but it is also on our YouTube page. Awesome. That was very cool. cool. Yeah. Uh, So you say that the stories in the film uh, help us remember the principles of love, gratitude, and freedom. Uh, Do you believe that doing this project, uh, remembering these values through the project, uh, has helped further develop your own Christian walk? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about, um, you know, when you think about those things, love, gratitude, and freedom, all of those things are summed up in the gospel and what Christ came to do for us. And that was actually what I saw when I was in Normandy. I saw the salvation story. I saw a group of occupied, oppressed, needy people. I saw a savior come to the rescue and, you know, rescue them and defeat the evil, restored their life, their food, their freedom, and reconcile them to one another um, where they had been divided before. So I saw this salvation story there and I saw that love was present there. Now, the churches, for the most part, are very empty in Normandy. And that made me very sad. And But I realized that God is there. He is there and he's embodied in their love that, that they feel for their liberators. It's just that they don't know it. And I wanted to be able to, I wanted to be able to somehow explain that or express that. And I wasn't sure how that would take place. But interestingly enough, the project itself has given me so many opportunities to share my faith on a one-to-one level um, that I really feel like it's just a vehicle for me to bring the love of Christ, the person of Christ um, into a place and an area where um, he wasn't before. So, for example, uh, there are many challenges and problems that we had with this project where they were with team members or problems with logistics or problems with money. And half of my team was French. And they knew from the very beginning that I was a Christian, that God had called me to this project. And so I would begin praying and I would ask them to pray. And eventually, um, when the prayers were answered, I would give praise to the Lord for answering those things. So they were watching as I would walk through and trust the Lord to provide or solve or direct. Um, I also began praying that a church would be planted in this area. I had a vision of maybe a retired uh, U.S. Army uh, chaplain coming back to live there and start a church. So I began praying for that. Um, And interestingly enough, when I went back to Normandy in 2019, uh, I was driving down the road in Carenton and I saw this thing that said Church Evangelique. And I was like, is that a church? <laughs> and I I went inside and I, of course, I didn't speak the language. I was all by myself. And um, I walked in and discovered that it was a German church plant. So there were three Germans in there and they had found a French pastor, a young French pastor from Leon and me. And I walked in and they spoke <laughs> a little broken English. And I said, I have been praying for this church 
for three years. And then it dawned on me. Here I was in the church that I had prayed for, and we had a German, a Frenchman, and an American, all who loved Jesus. And that just gave me chills, you know? Uh And so, you know, and even to this day, my husband and I have decided to buy a home in Normandy, not that we would live there year round, but for part time. And I just think it's more of this relationship ministry that I am being called to do, to befriend and to share my faith in a doing life way, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's a great example of church unity, too. So something we, yeah. we love to talk about. Hey, guys, we just wanted to tell you a few of the ways that you can support us, the Whole Church Podcast, your favorite church unity podcast. Yeah. So you can subscribe to our show on wherever good podcasts are found. You can rate our show on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. You can sign up for our newsletter using either our website or by emailing us at thewholechurch at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can share this episode on your own social media accounts. You can donate to our Cash App using the tag down below in the show notes. Or you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast. Yeah, especially that last one. TJ, you always say that. Perhaps I was told to say that. However, it's especially true for Patreon. Uh, You get access to a bunch of bonus stuff we do. You support us. We have a lot of goals to reach. It's kind of a great way to support the show. All right. Uh, Let's get back to it then. Yeah. But uh, so that, you know, that's incredible. It's always nice to hear about new churches uh, as long as they aren't combative with other churches. That's not not exactly (laughs) our thing. But uh, one of the things that interested us most from the film uh, was the moments that showed the soldiers from France, America, and Germany uh, in the modern day D-Day remembrance. Uh, you show how people were united by remembering the liberation that took place on that day. Uh, do you think there is any way the church can do better with something like this, where people from various denominations could get together and remember our liberation in Christ? Well, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, How did that even begin in Normandy? Well, at some point, somebody in Normandy, France had to say, I think we should invite the Germans to these remembrance ceremonies. Well, that was a really bold thing, I'm sure they said. And a lot of people didn't like it at first. The older French people did not like it. They did not want it to happen. And I don't think a lot of them are still fans of it to this day. However, Normandy was, many people in Normandy were really interested in branding themselves the land of peace, the land of peace and remembrance. And I think in order to do that, they needed to to demonstrate this was a peaceful land and a peaceful place and a forgiving place. And so uh, there are many Germans that are buried in Normandy, just like, you know, Americans um, and Germans do come back there. So I do think that it was a a brave, bold choice that someone had to do uh, to sort of put down this olive branch and begin this reunification. And I think that is what's going to have to happen in between our church. But I think ultimately, 
that introspection has to happen on individual levels. I mean, churches are made up of people, right? And and all of us have this blackness in our hearts that don't want to be around people that think differently than us or that disagree with us or um and I think that we have to acknowledge that within ourselves and work against that. Um, and I think we need to be bold to um, to take steps to try to do that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So um, I think you sort of already answered this then, but um, part of what you were talking about just there with uh, reaching out to the other German soldiers and uh, part of what we were talking about earlier with some of the other stories like um, – the, the man, um, I can't remember his name, who was shot in the back by American soldiers. Um, Michelle de Valavier. Okay. Um, yeah, a lot of these stories, listen, I'm <laughs> terrible with American names. Yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah. You have but, the um, same middle name. Yeah, a lot of these stories. Mich- Michael and Michelle. <laughs> okay, listen. It's the American version. <laughs> it's true. A lot of these stories <laughs> have kind of forgiveness as like a central theme. Um I know you kind of already were hinting at that. Um, do you think of any other ways that we could imitate that as the church, the kind of forgiveness? I mean, I really do think that, like I said before, it it really does. The, the church as a whole all begins with recognizing our brokenness. When we uh, and I'll just give some examples. I was actually telling somebody about this earlier. There was a time where my husband and I, my husband uh, had lost his job. We had lost our house and we were sitting outside of a house that we were going to rent. And I didn't want to go in and I was so mad and I was crying. And, you know, he's like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I don't want to rent. Losers rent. And I was like, wait a minute. Did I just say that? Like, I couldn't even believe that had come out of my mouth. Um, But that crisis brought out the ugliness that I did not even know was there. And so every single one of us, because we're human, the Bible tells us we all have this black, dark heart. And we like to think we're not that way. And most of the time we behave well. And many times it's because the Holy Spirit is empowering us. But all of us have that within us. And so I think we need to be cognizant that if that is true with us individually, it's true for everyone else that we meet. And so it's incumbent upon us to live in love and grace and constant forgiveness towards anyone else, be they individuals or be they groups of people. Um, And I think that that doesn't mean you whitewash everything evil that's ever been done. I don't think that it means you ignore um, things that have been done that, you know, are harmful to others. But I do think you can take a stand, you can forgive, and you can love in a balanced, healthy way um, with strength and dignity. And I think the only way that we can know how to walk that thin line is uh, by the Lord and His Holy Spirit showing us. Yeah, lots of prayer. Incredible. So, yeah, for sure. Uh, we both believe this is an incredible film, and it seems like a lot of festival committees agree with us. Uh, and it's not just for Americans or Christians. Uh, you know, it's a movie that everyone can watch and get something out of. And is there... When you get the chance to talk about the movie, uh, when you get interviewed, which I'm sure just happens all the time, uh, is there ever a question that you wish they would ask about the movie? 
You know, interestingly enough, I was just at a film festival and there it was the most um, I've done like six or seven in-person ones and all the other ones have been virtual. And I think we've been in like 23 um, festivals. So I was saying there was like 100 filmmakers at this one. And the last one, there was only 12. You know, that was the biggest group. And we were saying that we really miss being asked the filmmaker questions. So questions like, how did you think about this? Or this is such an amazing thing. What, you know, what did this person make you feel like or whatever? Um, Those are all great questions. But when you're in an audience of filmmakers, like at Sundance, let's say, um, or even in Chicago or New York, you have people that are like, okay, that's really high production value right there. How much did it cost you to make this film? Or what were your chief, you know, difficulties in this film? Or how did you strategize this technical thing? Uh, I'd really miss, I miss having questions that uh, people who are doing this in the know would ask. Right. So like the logistics. And that's a whole host of them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, how did you fund this? Or, you know, how did you do a two language, two country a film with a virtual film company, for example, you know, like all of us, we were not in the same place. We were all over the world um, and we had to work virtually. And so I'm very proud of the team that kind of put this all together and how we were able to pull it off with such a low budget. Right. So, well, if you are interested in the logistical questions, uh, how low was the budget? (laughs) So we it would have been a lot lower if I didn't have to do it the way I did it. So I estimated that the film would probably cost me about two hundred and fifty thousand. But it cost me probably twice that four hundred to four hundred fifty thousand. I'm not done spending money, but I'll tell you that the film festival applications themselves were about eight thousand dollars. So which I didn't even you know, anticipate in the very beginning. Um, And so after we got finished with the film and in shooting the film in 2018, and I entered into post-production, I had to continue raising money in order to keep editing. And so I would have to go around to the country. I would show our rough cut. I would try to raise money. And I did this like for over 40 times, 11 in France and the rest in the United States. And that traveling itself cost money that I would not normally have to spend if I had just been given the money. So it took a longer time and it took more money than it should because of how I had to finance the film. Um, but I would say around 450000 to date. Right. So far. Uh, so were there yeah. any, which, what, what were the like biggest differences between fundraising in France and in America? It has unique. Well, I thought that I would, yeah, I thought I would get a lot more funding from France, quite frankly, because uh, whenever anyone sees this, all they want to do is go to Normandy. Like I talked to the uh, one of the French um, embassy officials and they told me that this was the best PR for France they had ever seen. And I knew that was going to be the case. So I thought for sure they would support us. And honestly, 
um, there has been very little French financial support. Uh, They are not a philanthropic minded country. Uh, And I did not know that before I began. Um, They don't have sort of the tax breaks for um, philanthropic giving that we have here in the United States. So they just don't have that mindset about things. And we did apply for grants and stuff like that there, but we did got turned down for those. So uh, the generosity for the most part has come from the Americans. And but there is one Frenchman. His name is Nanu. Nanu gives us, uh, I think, you know, $25 or $50 every now and then. And he's been doing that since 2018. And it is the Frenchman that has supported us most faithfully over these many months because of how passionate he is for the veterans. So those tiny little faithful gifts have meant such an incredible amount to me. Right. Awesome. Just, Just looking at pictures of Point Duhok is enough to make me want to go. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful place. You have a place where people can go to still make donations for the film, right? Yeah, website. I do. com slash donate. Right now, um, we really are trying to keep paying our bills. We have about $25,000 in back bills that we're trying to pay. And so any little amount is would be helpful. We also have a podcast called Documentary First, which is um, a podcast of a first-time filmmaker's journey. It tells a lot of behind-the-scenes stories and then what it's like for a filmmaker as you kind of go through the process of selling your film. And in order to keep that podcast going, I, st- I would love to pay my people that help me every week. So any little amount of help is most great. I'm most grateful for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which I, I enjoy that show, too. I am. Um, man, every time you go to a film and you win something, I I feel like I'm just weird because I just relate. So I'm like, we won. And I'm like, I had literally <laughs> nothing to do with this. No, but you're on my team. You're on my you. team. Oh, yeah. You're um, on my team. <laughs> But so one one thing uh, we always like to ask um, our guest at the end of the episode, if you had to give just one single practical, tangible thing that someone, um, you know, just average Joe listening to this could just go do this thing and it would help better maintain unity in the church. What would it be? I wish I could say one, but there's going to be two. Number one, I would say I would really challenge everybody to read their Bible every day. Um, I read through the Bible with my friend, Sarah Murdoch and Judith Nolan, and we um, are we do it in the YouVersion app. We read through a plan and then we talk every morning about what we have read and reading the Bible. And we do it in a year, like read through the Bible in a year. Um, every day it refocuses my mind intentionally on who God is and his bigger picture. And I think if we commit to doing that, it begins to transform your mind in the way you think and live. Um, and it demonstrates to Christ, I think, that we are yearning for a relationship with him on a daily basis. And I think as we and as individuals begin to change, the church itself will change. Uh, but it all starts with us. We have right. to be the change we want to see in the church. Ooh, I just made that up. <laughs> that was so close to Gandhi. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Michael you Jackson? Said there was two? Oh. <laughs> and the, yeah, the second one, the second one, it's confessing our sins. I think yeah. that we need to be intentionally confessing what our sins are. And, and we need to do that individually, but as well as collectively, you know, as a Christian church, I've been thinking a lot about racism throughout, you know, 
our time in the United States. I came from the segregated South. Um, there were horrible things that were done there in the name of Christianity. And I was part of that culture. I didn't know it. I didn't participate in it that I know about. But I still feel like I should collectively be confessing that and repenting of that. So I think that would be a good thing for people to do. Yeah, I am. Um, if TJ doesn't mind. Continue. Uh, just a lot of people struggle with that idea. Because they're like, well, I never did anything racist, or I never did that. So, um, what what do you say to people like that when you when you confront them in conversation? Like, well, I mean, I think that we have to keep in mind that we are, you know, we are thinking only about ourselves in that context, um, and we are one continual people from the beginning of time until now. And if you look back at the Old Testament. There were so many times where people were called upon to collectively repent, even if they may not have done anything. You know, God called them all to repent as a nation for everything that they had done and for their disobedience. So I feel like if we're going to use the Bible as the authoritative word of God, we have to then mirror what God told his people to do. And so I do feel like um, you know, falling down before the Lord. And there are plenty of people in this world, Christians, in fact, who may not, uh, you know, pray on behalf of their family, pray on behalf of their church. Uh, but I do think that the Lord hears praying people and he hears us interceding for others. And so I would certainly say, what's the harm in it? What is the <laughs> harm in in collectively repenting for past evils that human people have done mm. yeah all right. my dad used to tell me that a lot when i made mom mad <laughs> what's the harm in <laughs> saying i'm sorry yeah you're right so uh if our listeners uh you know found a partner to read the bible with and started to confess their sins what changes do you think we would see in the church well i think that if people do that and they get involved in their church then you begin to see a transformed group of people, and then the church begins to look differently. Um, I think right now we are struggling to have a real committed um, church experience because particularly COVID has really, really thrown a loop in <laughs> yeah. this. Um, but I think it was we were struggling before um, being committed to church attendance and church groups and things like that. Uh, but I do think, again, if people are reading their Bible, if they are confessing their sins, if they're walking in relationship with one another, imagine this, imagine this, imagine for one moment that we as individuals, every individual that confesses that Jesus is the Lord, imagine if we were all living like the first century church. Would anyone, I mean, the only people that would have problems with the Christians would be those that are antagonistic to the gospel. I mean, if if Christian people actually lived in love with one another across the broad spectrum, people would not have any complaints for, for Christians other than, you know, maybe they're, I don't know, they're communists, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, but I just think right now we bring all of the harm on ourselves when we say we love Jesus, but yet we treat our neighbor or we treat an immigrant, um, you know, in a dismissive, disrespectful, non-loving way. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a big part of why we want yeah. church unity. Good word. So we can, you know, 
act as one church and stop hating people. But anyway, that will come in time, hopefully. Yeah. Great work. Uh, the, uh, the last thing we like to do before we get I into think I think God has to redeem our hearts. Right. But, and I hope he does. A little, a little quicker. It's getting dicey out here. <laughs> but uh, the, the last thing we like to do before we get into our outro is our God moment segment, which is just, you know, a moment in our lives recently where we share or work. We found God, whether it was a moment of worship or a challenge or a blessing. And I always make Josh go first because it gives us plenty of time to think usually. And it fills me with joy. <laughs> so, Josh, do you have a God moment for um, us? Yeah. So I'm about to get my second vaccine shot. And yeah. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. And uh, starting to, you know, line up opportunities to see some friends and stuff that I haven't seen in over a year. And, um, you, you know, I'm always thankful to be able to see TJ. We still see each other sometimes, but um, it's, every other weekend, know, it, it's exciting. Yeah, <laughs> it's exciting to be able to see other people and to I don't know, um, I guess I forgot what a blessing community is. And uh, I feel challenged to not take it for granted again. So, yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. So uh, I will go next to give you plenty of time. But uh, mine uh, kind of related to today's episode. Uh, I recently watched a movie. Uh, I think it was called The Girl Who Wore Freedom. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's a good movie. You should check it out. Uh, but it really... It, it's kind of, I have a big problem with Twitter. Uh, there's a lot of discourse that goes on on Twitter. And a lot of it makes me makes me pretty angry. Uh, and this particular thread was about countries America has invaded, which, you know, plenty of. It's like 20, 30 countries. But people kept putting France in there. And they wouldn't say Vichy France. It was just France. And that bothered me a lot because, you know, they're staging it as like some big hostile thing that, you know, like no one in France wanted this, whatever. But I'd recently watched a movie called The Girl Who Wore Freedom. And it, it really reinforced my stance on it that m maybe not most, but what it seemed like most Frenchmen are glad that that happened. And thankful for America's invasion of France, which was Vichy France, which is not France. But uh, so thank you, Christian Taylor, for doing that for me. Uh, it was really great and it really appeased my mind and my soul. Well, you are welcome. I'm so glad. Uh, I, th I find that so fascinating. I'm certainly glad I didn't find that thread because I would have had to wade <laughs> into those waters. But, you know, there's actually a line that a, a Frenchman in my film says. He says, you know, they didn't come to conquer. They came to liberate. And, mm -hmm. and that is true. Um, we may say the invasion of Normandy, but they don't think of it over there. They just say the Battle of Normandy and they say the liberation of Normandy. Um, and, you know, not and, and he also says, you know, they they came, they left on the battlefields their friends, and then they went home. And, you know, that is what happened there. And my son, Hunter, who was um, in Afghanistan, said after being in France and hearing 
um, the gratitude of the French people, it changed his mind about Americans intervention overseas, because we have something very, very precious here. We have had the gift of freedom. We do have a deep seated faith in, you know, across many places in the United States. We have this joy of life and prosperity and hope. And when we go over into other countries, just our personalities and our our, um, ideals of independence and freedom um, begin to change other places. And so, um, so yeah, I would have had a lot to say clearly about that. (laughs) Uh, But I just want to give a shout out to the Lord because um, this past week, uh, you know, I've been praying incessantly probably for the last year uh, because we really have been in a terrible financial hole with the film. There were about $20,000 worth of invoices that I had sitting on my desk all during the pandemic where I couldn't pay people that had worked for me to make that incredible film. And I was just, uh, just, I was doing everything I could. We, all of our donations had dried up because that's how we funded this film is through the donations of so many people. Um, And then we won the best documentary at the Julian Dubuque International Film Festival, which in the first hand, it gave me an opportunity to thank God publicly and to share my faith publicly. And I always take the opportunity to do that whenever we do win. Um, But they also it also came with a four thousand dollar prize, which um, I was then able to apply to um, to people's invoices. But when I came home, there was a $20,000 check waiting for me um, that a donor had sent and I was able to pay everyone. So that was just a huge, a huge answer to prayer. And not just for me, but for all of these other people that really needed the money. And I know that, you know, the 25,000 that we still have left out here at some point, he will provide that as well. So I just want to thank him for those blessings. Awesome. Uh, So that's all we've got for the show today. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Come back next week. We would love to have you again. And uh, wait, the guest or the audience? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And if you enjoyed it, please consider sharing it with a friend. Uh, That goes for uh, both of you, I guess. But (laughs) (laughs) mainly audience. So long. Uh, so Christian, uh, where can people go to find more of your film, more of you? Uh, yeah. Can, Thanks for asking. Be released. Yeah. So, um, it's called, it, it's called the girl who wore freedom. So it's at the girl who wore freedom.com is our website. And on our website, you'll be able to see links for the documentary first podcast. Uh, we have links there for a blog that we write often uh, that talks about veteran stories and other things. And we also have deleted scenes and other videos at the video tab. There's a donation button there. Uh, you are welcome to find. And <laughs> then um, you'll see a film festival tab there. And at the film festival tab, it shows you the festivals that that are coming up and how you can watch them. So the next film festival that's coming up is the GI Film Festival, and it begins May 18th. And we are doing a live screening on May 19th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. 
and you'll watch the film live. And then there will be a live Q&A after with me and Jeff Kurtenacker, the composer. Uh, and then after that live screening, it will still live on for another week or so online. Uh, the film releases in uh, June, right around D-Day this year. And we are super excited about that. It's going to be for sure on iTunes, on Amazon. Uh, we just found out our distributor is in Canada. So it's going to be on the largest cable network in Canada. Um, and we're still waiting to hear back from um, the Doc Channel in the United States and some other places like that. So we're hoping for those. And we got exciting news today, which, I mean, your listeners are hearing it first because um, uh, I just found out about an hour ago. We are going to be um, on all Delta uh, Delta flights and it looks like all uh, Air France flights as well, beginning in August. So that's, that's cool. just super news. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. I can't wait to watch the movie on an airplane. I mean, I know that sounds silly, but yeah. you know, you can watch your Me own too, movie on ever... a plane to France. <laughs> Next time, I, actually, I'll to uh, yeah. Okay, I'll be going to Arizona later. Delta <laughs> has it. I can just you know yeah. <laughs> I work that out <laughs> for sure. All right, so. Uh, some future guests for the podcast. Uh, we've got Reverend Steve Longlow, uh, an Anglican chaplain, which, you know, who knows, might retire and start a church in France. Uh, he is of French <laughs> descent. Uh, Pastor Andy Kinder, a good friend of ours. Uh, Dr. Greg Allison, the author of Historical Theology and Introduction to Christian Doctrine, whose, you know, works we use a lot in our Dividing Scriptures segments. And, uh, of course, at the end of the season, we're going to have Francis Chan. Hopefully. Yeah, he just, you know, we haven't scheduled that yet. So mm -hmm. It'll probably happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so when he agrees to be on the show, season one ends. Thanks yeah. for listening. <laughs> yeah. uh, come back next week. Love your support. And I uh, hope it continues. And if you would like to hear the very last thing we do on the podcast, uh, head over to Patreon, slide us a couple dollars, and uh, we'll get you right to that.